my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I want to warn you about something I'm hearing more and more complaints about recently. Movers. It's the Wild West trying to find a good moving company. I'm going to give you steps to protect yourself. Speaking of moving, one silver lining of the pandemic is more and more people are able to live and work from other parts of the country or even the world. I'll address that later. And of course, I'll get to your questions. It's been an ugly year for people getting scammed moving. The mafia uh, organized crime has been a force in the moving industry, the periphery, the uh, dishonest, crooked part of it, for as many years as I can remember, I have been doing what I do since 1987, and I've been getting moving complaints forever. But what's changed is what is happening to people with the moving complaints that's so much more severe than I used to hear about. And I need to make sure you understand What's going on out there that can just absolutely eat up your wallet? Here's what happens. You're looking for a mover, and you go online. You go to, uh, you could go to on Google or whatever search engine, and you're looking for a mover, and you see various movers listed And so you click on them and you get an online quote or you call somebody for a quote. And they may be very professional, very thorough. You feel like, hey, this is awesome. I'm in great shape here. But turns out that you have talked to a front for the mafia. Isn't that wild? But the moving industry, this used to be a severe problem in South Florida, and like a plague has spread across America. I was just uh, quoted in a TV story about someone who moved from the mountain states back east, and their stuff was loaded up by the movers, and that was the last they ever saw their stuff. Because what the mob does is they send in a moving truck, They very carefully pack up your stuff, put it in the truck, and in most cases, the last time you will ever see your possessions is when you saw the back of that truck close and drive off. Because what the mobsters do is they hijack your possessions and then either A, offer them back to you for a ransom, and if you refuse to pay the ransom, they're gone into the night. It, a lot of times, they'll decide, hey, this stuff's worth more than the ransom. We're just going to dispose of it. But if you don't pay the ransom, you never see your goods again. And this happens over and over and over again. I mean, just hideously ugly. And I want you to know what a problem it is in the moving industry. And I want to tell you there's a way for you to avoid the problem. 
So what you do is you hire a mover, only hire a mover, that has been vetted by the moving industry itself. And when you do that, you're going to eliminate most of the problems. If you start at the trade association website, moving.org, you'll see right at the top, find a pro mover now. Now, Let me tell you what a pro mover is. It is a mover who has agreed to follow an industry code of conduct. They have agreed to a system that if you have a dispute with them about damage or lost goods, that they've agreed to a procedure to resolve that. And you have a right to what's known as a binding estimate. Even a legitimate mover will normally only offer you an estimate. An estimate is useless. It is worthless. An estimate is not a guaranteed price. On the other hand, if you request require a binding estimate, that is all your move will cost. You know up front what it will cost. There's one additional thing. You need to buy insurance on your possessions. The feds have never revised coverage for damaged or lost or stolen goods since I think the 1930s. So there's essentially, considering the inflation over the last 90 years, there's essentially no coverage on your items you're moving at all unless you buy coverage. You, most people buy it from the mover itself. You want to make sure you buy replacement value coverage. That means that you don't get in an argument about how old the TV is or something like that that they break. I also recommend you take a deductible of a few hundred dollars, maybe several hundred dollars, so that you're using the coverage only for items that are really valuable that they get replaced if they're lost, stolen, or broken in the move. But be wary of anything you find on Dr. Google about moving because there are more snakes than there are not snakes anytime you search for a mover. And understand there is no cop on the beat in the event that you end up with a mob mover, you end up with organized crime, stealing your possessions and holding them hostage, nobody's riding to your rescue. So it's up to you up front to protect yourself. Krista? We've got a couple about student loans today, Clark. Kevin in Georgia says, my student loan is showing 15 days past due. I wrote to the lender and inquired about the federal pause and was told the pause is only for federal student loans and my loans are bank-owned loans. I thought all student loans were on pause. Please help me navigate this. I don't want to default, but I can't afford these payments. Kevin, I'm really sorry to tell you that uh, private student loans are not part of the federal payment moratorium. That was just extended, by the way, recently. So it is up to each private lender, each bank, how you're treated if you cannot pay your loans. So what you need to do is you need to call them back immediately and see if you can talk with, uh, usually they'll refer to themselves as forbearance specialists or whatever, who can help you get a payment pause or temporary payment holiday on your private student loans. Interest continues to accrue. When you call in to a bank lender of student loans, a private lender, 
generally you're talking to the collections department. Their only job is to try to get money out of you. That's why you need to talk with someone at the lender who can help you avoid default on the loan by offering you some form of forbearance. This is from Tanya in Tennessee. Student loans have been extended until the end of January 2022. Should I continue paying off my federal student loans at five and a quarter percent or use the extra money to pay off high interest rate credit cards at 18 percent? Since the uh, student loan moratorium has been continued, the feds are picking up your interest payments for you. So definitely until January, you want to use your extra money to pay against the high interest rate credit cards. This is from Tim in California. I spent an hour on the web looking for car value versus full coverage insurance. I found nothing but ads. It was ridiculous. The internet used to be such a valuable tool. I went to your site and it was in the first article stating your 10% rule on value versus premiums. Thank you. I'm on the fence on switching to liability insurance only. My truck is not worth 10 times the premiums, but it's close. It is the fact that I own two homes the deal breaker, but is the fact that I own two homes the deal breaker on my decision to go solely with liability insurance on my truck? So the fact that you're in a position that you can own two homes means that you can probably afford with a depreciated value, you know, a truck that's been so heavily depreciated to go with liability coverage only. Your great risk, since you're developing assets in your life or have already developed nice assets in your life, Tim, is protection from lawsuits, the liability side. And that's why not covering that truck for collision comprehensive, once you fall below that value threshold, makes sense. Now, here's the thing, though. Let's say your premiums are Let's just keep it simple. Five hundred a year, and the truck's worth forty-five hundred. Just for argument's sake, if your truck was totaled, can you afford to come up with that money towards replacing the vehicle? If you can't, even though the formula says you should get rid of collision comprehensive, you may need to keep it anyway because you don't have that available cash. This is from Eric in Georgia. We're looking to buy a new car very soon. We also have plans to potentially buy a house within the year. We have the funds to buy the car in cash, but should we pay for the car in cash to avoid having our credit hit, or should we pay for half of it and finance the rest? Our credit scores are both around 800. The car would be financed at 0%. We're afraid of our credit scores getting dinged and the monthly payment and debt causing the mortgage companies to look at us negatively. We have no other debts, period. We both fully fund our Roth IRAs and contribute some to our 401ks. So number one thing, you've got a ton of money sitting around. You've got a, you're in a position to easily pay 20% down on a home, even if you do pay cash for the vehicle. Um, my bias, since you have been such a good saver, you're doing such a good job investing, I would rather you not have the obligation for that vehicle loan that could, in fact, hurt you on ratios for getting the mortgage on the home. There's two possibilities. One is you wait to replace a vehicle you have with a new or newer one until after you have closed on your new home. As an alternative, just pay cash for the vehicle. 
your ability to live on less than what you make. You're going to continue to build up reserves. You're going to have enough money for that 20% down. And that's how I'd handle it, Eric. And congratulations to both of you for being so phenomenal with how you're handling money. And I want to tell you something. In the past, employers just weren't into having people who work in an office job work anywhere but the office. The pandemic's changed so much of that. And if you've thought about moving somewhere with the newfound freedom you've got, I've got some advice for you straight ahead. Survey after survey shows that people are willing to take pay cuts to not have to go back to the office. And I'm sure not everybody who says it to a surveyor really means it because of what it means in dealing with your life expenses and everyday costs, but it shows how much people have loved this new freedom of being able to work remotely. And the pay cut thing, let me tell you, it's happening. Google recently announced that people who do take the option of permanently working remotely will almost certainly have to face pay cuts. And we're going to see that. I told you, um, gosh, years ago about people who took a corporate reload with a New York-based company to an office they opened in Florida were having to take 30% pay cuts moving to Florida, and people were signing up like mad, saying, I want the 30% pay cut. I want to go to Florida and leave New York behind. And so people will make that kind of choice. And in the case of New York to Florida, their overall cost of living may have gone down enough that it just worked just fine, and they escaped winter. So we are facing a multi, I mean, this is like a matrix. I have a nephew who he and his wife both work remotely. And they've moved around the country. They haven't moved around the world like other people have been living in foreign locales working during the pandemic. But they have moved around the United States and they love being free to live wherever they want to. I'll tell you something that's not talked about with this going on, though. And this is a strong, strong belief that I have about human relationships. That in most work situations, most places, forgetting even if they tell you, well, to work remotely, you have to take a pay cut. If advancement in a career and making more money progressing well on the pay scale over the course of a career is really important to you, you cannot work remotely exclusively. You might be able to work remotely a day or two a week, but you've got to be present. The way humanity works, people kind of get written out of the script for promotions when they work completely remotely. People's connections to their fellow workers and to the employer eventually suffers if you're living across the country or outside the United States working for an organization. So it's a bigger choice than just, hey, I want to be able to live who knows where 
and do my work on a different schedule. You know, years ago, I told you about how radiology now has these practices that read the overnight shift in Australia. And there are um, people from the United States who've gone to work in these practices and they read the, um, the radiology reports in what's daytime there, but reading what would be overnight in the United States. And they earn a decent living picking up the night call that for them is day call, and they're living in Australia. Pretty cool thing. But again, you're doing piecework without really a chance for advancement. That's a field that people don't advance like they would in a corporate organization. So it may be just fine and not matter. But in so many jobs, it does. Plus, you have the issues involved with different laws, different taxation, and especially if you live outside the United States, you've got different customs, ability to communicate, and things like that. So there's a lot to think about, but particularly if you were younger, you got to think about what is your career path, what's your career trajectory, if you choose to work from where you want to live, and it's far remote from where the company is based. Krista? And Clark, we have a question kind of in this vein. Garth in Virginia says, my work is offering the opportunity to move my family and work in Australia for several years. Do you have any general advice for extended stays overseas? Do I sell my house, store my furniture, et cetera, or try to sell it? And can I keep all my U.S. accounts, bank accounts, brokerages, credit cards? So, Garth, those are wonderful questions. It's so funny that I just I mentioned Australia. And uh, so it's a phenomenal experience for you and your family to live in Australia for several years. I would say you do sell your house unless you love that house and you intend to move back to it when you're done in Australia. In that case, if you have a professional who you trust to manage the house for money, you pay somebody to manage the house, you don't ask a friend or relative to manage it for you. Uh, you can pay a, a real estate management firm to do so. If you're not sure that's the house you want to go back to, though, sell it. As for your furniture, this depends on how long you're going to stay in the home because it's expensive to rent a place to store your furniture. And the furniture, if it has significant value to you, Selling furniture carries very little value. A lot of it you can't even sell. Brings uh, really pennies on the dollar selling furniture used. So if you do have furniture you love that you'd want to have when you come back and it is a period, let's say three years or less, then it's probably worth storing the furniture and having it available to you when you come back. As to keeping uh, accounts open in the United States, you definitely want to do that. Absolutely, you want a credit card in the United States. And you should know that if you have your brokerage account with Charles Schwab, you can have a Schwab ATM card and use it fee-free. Schwab absorbs all the fees for you to access the Australian dollar at ATMs whenever you want to at banker's buying rate, which is a favorable exchange rate 
at no fee as many withdrawals as you'd need. Uh, you don't want to break all your U.S. financial arrangements, particularly credit cards, because you don't want to have to rebuild your credit when you return to the United States. And what a wonderful opportunity you're going to have to see the world from a whole different perspective in Australia. And if you're like any other expat going, you're going to be in Sydney, Melbourne, or Canberra. Take the time to go visit Western Australia, which most Americans never, ever see. This is from Edit in Utah. Stock puts seem like a good idea. What am I missing? I really like stock X and would buy it now. However, I sell a put instead, and if it doesn't reach the strike price, I made a little money on the sale. If it drops to the strike price, then I have to buy it at the lower price, which I think is good because now I have a stock that I wanted in the first place at a discount. Okay, <laughs> Eddie, ed, I'm sorry, edit. Getting into um, options on stocks, which a put is a form of option, is not the pain-free event as you think it is. I mean, yeah, it's true. You, the options expire and all you've lost if you don't execute is the cost of the option itself. This is a strategy most often used by people who are involved in uh, specific situations with stocks that involve um, restricted shares, things like that. And I don't recommend this as a normal activity. If you're design is to own a particular company, StockX, the idea is that should be a purchase of something you believe in for the long haul and not worry so much about the price in the short term. So if you want to play the options market, that's just fine. It's a game that I don't play. And from Andrea in Georgia, I responded to an inquiry about being a secret shopper and was sent a package including a cashier's check to cash. Oh, boy. Red flag for me. Instructions to make purchases, including Amex gift cards. This gets worse. And we to send Amex gift cards to company headquarters. Pretty sure this is a scam and the address will be a fake address. Can you confirm and what should I do with this information and the cashier's check? Andrea, thank you, thank you, thank you for checking in with me before you got involved in this. This is a long-time scam. The cashier's check is phony. You will cash it. It will clear. You will buy the gift cards. You give the information on them to the crooks. The cashier's check will eventually come back bounce. Could take six to eight weeks. You then are duty-bound to make up all that money. And you are out the money that you paid for the gift cards. So this is just a straight theft of money from you by a crook and don't get involved as far as the cashier's check. Uh, it's fake anyway. You can frame it. You can stick it in a drawer. You can shred it, whatever you want to do. And I want to tell you, one thing I'm glad you did was join us for today's episode for more advice, contact our free Team Clark Consumer Action Center. You can get free one-on-one -on -one advice. Find our number and hours at clark.com slash CAC.